Will you pray with me? God, meet us here in this space as we open up your word. May this word be profitable to us. May it speak to our hearts and lead us into a more meaningful relationship with you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, a few of you know a really good friend of mine, and some of you don't, uh, but my good friend's name is Bo. Bo, like Jeff, is a really, really talented, creative worship leader. And years ago, I was looking to hire a worship leader, and Bo sent me a resume. And on his resume, he had hobbies. And under hobbies, he had one word, and the word was coffee. (laughs) And I was like, this was intriguing enough for me for an interview. So I said, all right, coffee's your hobby. Let's meet at my favorite coffee shop. He came out, and when we had coffee together and we hung out and got to know each other a little bit, I just knew that this was my guy. Now to say, those of you that know him, to say that Bo is casual might be the understatement of the year. On our first Sunday, he's wearing jeans, a t-shirt, and his rainbow sandals, which I learned over a few years of working with him that this was just standard Sunday attire for worship. And right before we were going to begin, Bo kicks off his rainbow sandals and he leads the congregation barefoot. Now, at Lightshine here, this is not really a big deal. Like, we wouldn't care if Jeff took off his shoes unless you were seated in the front row, maybe. (laughs) That might be problematic. But aside from that, nobody here would care. Uh, But in my former setting, I got a number of uh, emails, phone calls, uh, complaints, all saying how inappropriate and disrespectful this was, and as a supervisor, I needed to immediately make sure that he wore his uh, shoes the next week in worship. So Bo and I got together, we talked about it. We had a couple good laughs about all the fuss. Um, and then I asked him, what's your, what's your reason for your unchurchy attire? Now, anybody care to venture a guess? Bo's biblical justification for kicking off his sandals in worship was what? Anybody? Exodus chapter 3, right where we are, Moses in the burning bush, where Moses is on Mount Sinai, in the presence of God, he takes off his sandals as a sign of respect. Now, what Christian can argue with that? (laughs) What he was doing was, Dale, put your hand down. Jeez. God commanded him to take off his shoes. You can't can't argue with that. He didn't command Mo to. (laughs) That's true. You did not command Bo to, as far as you know. You might. You might. We don't know. Um, and so from, it's funny, because from that day on, he became known as everyone in church called him Barefoot Bo. Now, two weeks ago, I was preaching out at Northland Village Church, where he's in Pasadena, where he's the worship leader. I went out there and preached for them on a Sunday evening a couple weeks ago, and guess what? He's still leading worship, just like he was 10 years ago, barefoot. Um, it's, it's biblical, Daily You can't. You can't complain too much. Just a little We're going to look at Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. Here's how it goes. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, who led his flock beyond the wilderness. He came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said to him, Here I am. Then he said, Come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said, Further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. 
And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I've observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them from the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of the land, out of that land, to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and any other ites that might have been there. The cry of the Israelites has now come up to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppressed them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh and bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. But Moses said to God, if I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, thus you shall say to the Israelites, the Lord, your God, The God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my title for all generations. The word of the Lord. And so we have the first two chapters of Exodus cover 400 years of slavery in Egypt, while the next 38 chapters, beginning with where we just read, cover one single year of their liberation. Moses had actually been, we skipped over this story, Moses had actually been an eyewitness to one of these Egyptian taskmasters beating a Hebrew slave nearly to death. It was an emotional and traumatic experience for him. He was a Hebrew, but he was raised by Pharaoh's daughter in Pharaoh's own house. And so this, when he sees this, this rage wells up within Moses. He kills the Egyptian taskmaster, and he's forced to flee the wrath of Pharaoh, whom he had been faithfully serving. One author wrote that Pharaoh didn't want Moses dead or alive, he just wanted him dead. God used, this is this incredible, four decades, 40 years in the wilderness to prepare Moses for this moment. Either Moses is a really slow learner, what God had uh, for Moses was going to be something so significant that it took a long time to get him prepared. In the meantime, Moses is married, he has children, all the while God is preparing him for this role as Israel's deliverer. Now, shepherding probably was not the career path that Moses dreamed of while he was a prince in Egypt. And while tending to his flock on Mount Horeb here, it's also known as Sinai, we know that word maybe a little better, Moses catches sight of the impossible, this bush that's on fire, and yet it's not being consumed by the flames. Naturally, he's interested, and he has to go over and take a closer look to check it out. Now, This is really strange stuff, is it not? Like, why does God choose a burning bush? I mean, why not a phone call or a text message, a neon sign, a shout from the clouds? I mean, I can think of a lot of ways, but God chooses a burning bush. Why? I I have to believe that God is really trying to get Moses' attention. Had Moses missed some of these signs before, had God been trying to get Moses' attention for years? I don't know, but this one actually works. 
I wonder, you know, it made me laugh. I, I kind of chuckled at this too. I wonder how many times God has tried to get our attention. And we just shrug it off. Act like it's some sort of coincidence and move on by. How many was that? I mean, who knows? That bush had been there. Who knows if it had been burning before? Moses finally gets it. He sees it. And once God has his attention, he calls out to him from the bush. The lesson here is actually really, really simple. When God gets your attention, you should be paying attention. When God lays something on your heart, you should be taking this really seriously. When Moses had come close enough, God tells him to remove his sandals. Maybe he told Bo to remove his sandals. I don't know. I'm going to ask him. I'm going to contact him after this and find out. This is the first time in the Bible that the word holy is used. He's to remove his sandals because he's on holy ground. And holy is actually, it sounds complicated, but the, the definition just means separation. It means set apart. There's this distinction, and Dale, you did a good job in the, in the confession making this distinction between creator and created. It speaks to this chasm between God and humanity, that Moses is nothing like God. He's not holy. He's like us. The Apostle Paul in Romans wrote that none are righteous, not even one. And so now the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he has a word for this sinner, Moses. This murderer, Moses. God wants Moses to understand something really important, that his love for this people is totally unshakable, and that God is paying attention to their current situation. This is he's just, God is desperate to get this across to Moses. And look what God said. God said these things. God said that he heard the cries of their suffering, that God saw the injustices of slavery, that God remembered the covenant with, that he made with Abraham, and that God knew their every need. This, he's just, God is desperately trying to get this across to Moses because sometimes when we're hurting, when we're suffering, we question whether God is really paying attention. Does God hear? Does God see? Does God remember or know what our needs are in these times when we're hurting? And I love this part of the story because it's a part of the story that shows the heart of God, the compassion of God. It's so important to this story that these words were repeated almost verbatim from the previous chapter, which we skipped over. The same words. And then out of this compassion, out of this grace, God is about to take action on behalf of his people. God said, I've come down to deliver them from the Egyptians. The time had come after 400 years of this unthinkable oppression and slavery to be free. It made me think of all the injustice that's going on in the world right now. There's so much that's wrong. There's a lot that's broken. It's easy to get angry. It's easy to be cynical or to question where is God in the midst of all this suffering, all this craziness. I just thought of a few things, things that came to my mind. This global refugee crisis that's going on is just out of control. North Korea launching a missile over the country of Japan. This is insane. We see people in Venezuela struggling and dying for freedom and close to home. We have this devastation caused by Hurricane Harvey. Where is God in the midst of all of this craziness and suffering? And I like this passage. It says that God is close enough to be able to hear the cries of suffering people. I, I love this. 
But God's close enough to see the injustices, the things that are going on. Close enough to see the devastation. It's this reminder that God remembers God's promises. That God knows exactly where it is that we are and the things that we need. Well, Moses, at this point, he's got to be a little bit fired up. He's ready. God says, I'm coming. I'm going to come down. I'm going to deliver these people from the Egyptians. And Moses is like, oh, this is going to be awesome. You know, God's going to kick some serious Egyptian rear end. And then the surprise of a lifetime to Moses. God called to Moses out of the bush to inform him that he, Moses, was the one that was being sent to confront the most powerful man in the world. And at this point, Moses has got to be like, what? Like, wait a minute, what just happened here? You said you were going to deliver the Israelites. You never said anything about me. You want me to do what? Moses, just a few seconds ago, a few verses ago, Moses is perfectly willing. He says, here I am. He even shows his readiness by taking off his sandals in the presence of a holy God, but that was all before God asked him to do anything. He was really happy to participate until he heard what he was being asked to do. We should be a little bit surprised. I mean, people were so used to our biblical heroes thinking of them as responding with enthusiasm to God's call. Not Moses. This isn't what we see. Moses actually, I think his response is priceless. He responds with two questions, really what they are. These two questions are two excuses. Moses wants to know two things. He wants to know, he says, who am I and who are you? He wants to know who he is and he wants to know who this God is that's asking him to do this crazy thing. He says, who am I that I should be the one to confront the most powerful man in the world? He's not wrong to ask that question, is he? Would you ask that question? Why me? I would say, shouldn't you wait a few more centuries and send someone like, like Clint Eastwood or Charles Bronson, <laughs> Wonder Woman, um, somebody with like a little bit more firepower than Moses? But God basically says to Moses, this is God's kind of answer to Moses. My paraphrase is God says, you are the answer. You're the answer. Moses was God's answer to the injustice of slavery. God's plan all along was to send Moses as the deliverer. You just remember that when God is trying to get our attention, that we need to pay attention. And so, Moses doesn't need any firepower. He has everything he needs because God says, I am with you. And so Moses had more than he needed to deliver the Hebrew people. That is sufficient. This is what the Bible is trying to say, that it's enough, that it's more than enough. And so Moses is about to learn something. He's about to learn that as a team, he and God are no, Pharaoh's no match for this team. And maybe the, one of the great paradoxes of Scripture, the great paradoxes of this God who is sovereign, is the fact that God uses ordinary people to do these extraordinary things. And I find it fascinating that even after appearing to Moses in a burning bush, even after speaking to him from a desert shrub, right, just be there, even after God tells Moses not to worry because he's going to be with him and Pharaoh doesn't stand a chance, Moses offers a second excuse. Moses says, I don't know what to say. He said, if I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? His excuse number two is, I don't know what to say. 
Now, God could have tried to do a lot of things right here. Could have tried to prove that Moses was the right man for the job. He could have listed out all of Moses' awesome character traits or his incredibly good looks. <laughs> Look at that. But that's not, that's not what God did. The Exodus did not depend on Moses' competence. The Exodus depended on God's presence, not Moses' competence. And so it's easy to see why Moses wanted more. He wanted more information. He wanted more confirmation. He probably wanted some more firepower. Moses knew that his people were going to think he was nuts when he told them that God spoke to him in a burning bush. They were going to look at him and they were going to say, you got too much desert sun suffering from dehydration. God gives Moses a name, which represents God's essence, God's character, God's reputation. He says, I am who I am. And that just cleared up everything. <laughs> I mean, Moses probably had to spend the rest of his life trying to figure out what that meant. And so it's this mysterious statement. It actually raises more questions than it provides answer. But it seems more likely that God's name is given in the next verse. When God says, the Lord, the God of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the Hebrew letters for Lord are Y-H-W-H. We pronounce it Yahweh. Um, and the Jews consider that such a sacred word that like our rabbi friend, Sappho, right next door, he won't say those. He won't say those words. They're too sacred. They're too important. And so Lord really is the name that God has given. Lord says it all. It says that God is eternal, that God is sufficient, that God is sovereign, that God is enough, and that God is not dependent on anything or anyone. Now, you might remember in the New Testament, Jesus was asked, who do you claim to be? And you remember what Jesus responded. This is what he said. He said, very, I tr very truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. And now we should understand why those people that heard Jesus say that bent over, they picked up rocks and they were going to throw them at Jesus to stone him to death. Jesus knew exactly what he was saying when he identified himself as I am. Just as God identified himself as I am to Moses. And so in the New Testament, we see that we know God's name. We know the name, the only name by which we're saved, and that name is Jesus. And so when God gets your attention, pay attention. Moses was focused on all the things that made him inadequate, rather than being focused on God's sufficiency. I remember when God got my attention to start this church. I did exactly what Moses did. I said, who, me? You're crazy. No way. I did the exact same thing. I had way more excuses than two. If Moses had two, I, I, could, I could go on for an hour of all the excuses that I had. But what I learned over and over again, the things that God was teaching me through this process was it wasn't about me. That God was enough, that God was sufficient, that God was all I needed, and that God was walking with me. And I had to learn those things as Moses did. The call and commissioning of Moses is just this reminder to all followers of Jesus Christ that we all have a job to do. This maybe even a specific task that only you can do. And I don't know what that task is, but I do believe that. And I love the missional nature of this text. That the God who saves us is the God who sends us. 
the God who rescues Moses, the God who delivers the Israelites, is the God who sends them, who sent Moses. What a powerful reminder that we are an answer to some of the injustices of the world today that God calls us by name as God did to Moses and God chooses to send people like you and I. And it made me think about this past week, the, the uh, tropical storm Harvey dumping almost, what, 50 inches of rain on the city of Houston. During this devastation, I find this is amazing, in the chaos, there were 50, over 50,000 911 calls placed by desperate people. 50,000. Only a small fraction of those calls could actually be responded to by professionals. And so the questions were quickly, they quickly became like, who's going to answer these calls? Who is going to rescue these desperate people? Because the first responders, the trained ones, were totally overwhelmed. They had no chance of getting to all those people. And then I found this incredible story. I hope some of you heard. Look at this guy. This guy's awesome. All right? God got the attention of these guys. The Cajun Navy. Now, this organization is great. They're this like nebulous, informal group of hunters and fishermen. They're these really skilled outdoorsmen, and they're, they're banded together by one really simple principle. The principle is if they have a boat and they're not in trouble, they're to go help others. That's simple. There's no organization, there's like no communication. That's the rule. And so these guys first appeared uh, during Hurricane Katrina, when in the midst of this one impromptu rescue operation, someone actually wrote Cajun Navy on the giant white ice chest, and that's how they got their name. They saved an estimated 10,000 people after Katrina. 10,000. These same guys mobilized right here last week during Harvey. We don't know how many people they rescued yet, but it's going to be in the thousands for sure. They, I saw one report of one guy who was making repeated half-mile trips with his boat that held seven people. This guy pulled over 100 people to safety by himself. Just one. And so the government welcomed these guys. They welcomed their help, saying that the first responders in Texas, this is amazing. The reports are that the first responders in Texas, they've been neighbors, bystanders, and people willing to help. Neighbors, bystanders, and people willing to help, not professionals. God uses people that are willing to act. People that are willing to be sent. God has acted in Jesus Christ. God now sends people like you and like me as an answer. The Cajun Navy, these guys are just a great example of who we're supposed to be. When God gets our attention, we should be paying attention. Like Moses, we're all going to offer up our excuses. Too short, too tall, too skinny, too fat, not smart enough. Don't know what to do, don't know what to say. But just think about this. What if this guy, what if this guy right here, what if he said that? and he decided to stay home, how many people wouldn't be around today? Just this one guy. That God stands right in the midst, this is what we see in the scripture, that God stands right in the midst of suffering, trying to get our attention, trying to send us as part of the solution. And all the while, God is saying to us that Jesus is sufficient, that Jesus is enough, that Jesus is all we will ever need to be a part of that solution, an agent of deliverance in a world that is bound by sin of every kind. So take off your shoes if you must. 
not to clear it with this guy. But make sure before you go out that door that you put him back on. Because we're definitely going to need him. You pray with him. Gracious God, like Moses, we too are standing on holy ground because you are with us. God, it's just a humbling thought that you would choose to use people like us. It's a humbling thought to think that you saved us in order to send us as part of your answer in a world that just has incredible, desperate need. And so God, if you must, shake us up a little bit to get our attention so that we might be more useful to you and to your kingdom. Amen.